Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, this time to be together as community, this time to dive into your word and to allow you to speak to us. You are always seeking us out. You are always speaking to us. Whether or not we are attentive or attuned to your voice is another question, Lord. So we pray that tonight, any distractions, anxieties, worries, any obstacles to us hearing your voice, we pray that you would remove those. We lay them at your feet. We just ask, Lord, that you would give us open ears, open hearts that are ready and willing to receive whatever you have in store for us. We pray, Lord, that the words of sacred scripture would become clearer, would challenge and convict us to conform our lives more to the gospel and to follow you more faithfully as your disciples. We pray for all of the intentions that are on our hearts, our friends, our family, those in our lives who need healing, us included, all of the ways in which we, uh, we need you, because you are our Savior, and we cannot save ourselves. And so we bring these needs to you, Lord, knowing that you have in store for us tonight, in the words of Scripture, answers to our questions, comfort for the ways we are seeking solace, peace, joy, all the things that we are looking for, you have in store for us, Lord. And so we pray that we would be able to receive them, able to notice them, and that we would be fully present to enjoy this time in your word and with one another. We pray all of this in your most precious name. Amen. In the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are reading the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And that is Luke chapter 12. Verses 32 to 48. Luke chapter 12, 32 to 48. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles over here. There's a sign-up sheet if you want to be on our email list, snacks, waters, things like that. So please feel free to, uh, to grab those things. But tonight we are in Luke 12, verses 32 to 48. It's a longer gospel, and it goes through a few different sections. It starts in the middle of one section that's very close to where we were reading last week. So last week, if you remember, there were some parables about wealth, that we do not put all of our hope in wealth, in possessions, um, that that is not what it means to store up treasure. It would rather want to store up treasure in heaven. And it goes into a section that we did not read about uh, not being worried. Don't worry about anything. Depend on God. Rely on him. Trust in him. And so we're jumping in tonight in the middle of that section. Okay, so it's all about don't have any worries. Your worry is attached to earthly things, but when you seek things that are above, when you seek heavenly rewards, spiritual treasure, then those worries and those, those anxieties kind of slip away. And then we're, that's going to go into a whole other section about kind of preparing for the end, the end of our life, the end of time. Um, so that's how these things are linked. So we're beginning in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 32. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said here. This is Jesus speaking to a crowd, some of whom are Pharisees, some of whom are his disciples. 
very well, uh, very likely in the middle of the day in a large area, and he's in the middle of the teaching, starting in verse 32. Jesus says, Do not be afraid any longer, little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your belongings and give alms. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not wear out, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach, nor moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. Gird your loins and light your lamps, and be like servants who await their master's return from a wedding, ready to open immediately when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds vigilant on his arrival. Amen, I say to you, he will gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. And should he come in the second or third watch and find them prepared in this way, blessed are those servants. Be sure of this, if the master of the house had known the hour when the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be prepared, for at an hour you do not expect, the Son of Man will come. Then Peter said, Lord, is this parable meant for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, Who, then, is the faithful and prudent steward whom the master will put in charge of his house to distribute the food allowance at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master, on arrival, finds doing so. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his property. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants to eat and drink and get drunk, then that servant's master will come on an unexpected day and at an unknown hour and will punish him severely and assign him a place with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will but did not make preparations nor act in accord with his will shall be beaten severely. And the servant who was ignorant of his master's will, but acted in a way deserving of a severe beating, shall be beaten only lightly. Much will be required of the person entrusted with much, and still more will be demanded of the person entrusted with more. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we have an interesting section here. Once we get out of that dependence on God, we have this whole section on the vigilant and faithful servants. So as we read this again, uh, even though this is a challenging passage, language can kind of run on a little bit, and this is not a very common passage we read a lot, I want to encourage you to try and listen for something that stands out to you. Okay, let's not pay attention to, okay, what does this, this passage actually mean? How are we trying to interpret this theologically? Just listen and see, does something resonate with you? Does a word strike a memory, strike an emotion, make you think of something, relate to something going on in your own life? So as we read this one more time, I just want to invite you to listen a little more closely, a little more attentively, and see if just something strikes you and hold on to whatever that is. And begin to ask yourself, why is this standing out to me? What is God trying to say to me through this? Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 12. Second and final time through uh, in verse, starting in verse 32. Do not be afraid any longer, little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your belongings and give alms. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not wear out. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach nor moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. Gird your loins and light your lamps, and be like servants who await their master's return from a wedding, ready to open immediately when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds vigilant on his arrival. Amen, I say to you, he will gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. And should he come in the second or third watch and find them prepared in this way, blessed are those servants. Be sure of this, if the master of the house had known the hour when the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be prepared, for at an hour you do not expect, the Son of Man will come. Then Peter said, Lord, is this parable meant for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, Who then is the faithful and prudent steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to distribute the food allowance at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master on arrival finds doing so. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his property. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants to eat and drink and get drunk, then that servant's master will come on an unexpected day and at an unknown hour and will punish him severely and assign him a place with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will but did not make preparations nor act in accord with his will, shall be beaten severely. And the servant who was ignorant of his master's will, but acted in a way deserving of a severe beating, shall be beaten only lightly. Much will be required of the person entrusted with much, and still more will be demanded of the person entrusted with more. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look back over this passage, especially the things that stood out to you. What resonated with you or what questions did this inspire? Did any particular word or phrase spark something in you, remind you of something? Uh, and so if you're watching this on Zoom, feel free to leave those reflections or questions in the chat. Or if you're watching on YouTube, do that in the comments. But for those of us here, I invite you to uh, join a table if you would like, if you're not at a table with others. And spend the next about 10 minutes just sharing what stood out to you and why or what questions and uh, kind of reflections you have on this reading, and then we'll come back in the larger group and share those together. All right. I'd love to hear some of your reflections, things that stood out to you for whatever reason, and or any uh, questions you have about this passage. I know it's a, more of a challenging one. Yeah. Do you have some on Zoom, Katie? Yes, I do. All right, let's hear what Zoom has to say. Okay. Hi, everyone on Zoom. This is from Chris. She says, the verse for where your treasure is so will your heart be, what stood out to her. Mm -hmm. When first, first read, yeah, when first read, I thought of my family, especially children and grandchildren. Mm. They are my treasure here on earth and where my heart is. 
But the Lord is in my heart, but not always on my mind throughout each day. It's a challenge to focus on him throughout each day, in every day, to the same extent that I focus on my family. But that's the only way to cultivate that deep faith and love for the Lord. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Reminds me, St. Augustine said, uh, you are what you love. So I always you know, say to people, like, you know what you love when you look at your, uh, your calendar and your checkbook, where you spend your time, where you spend your money. You know, those are the things you love. And that becomes who we are. That's why so many people, uh, especially in Western culture, become identified with what they do, you know, their work. I am a, you know, I am, you know, and someone once asked me, because I was in a mindset like that once, um, probably more than once, but I think a spiritual director at the time said, uh, tell me who you are without telling me what you do. And I was like, uh, especially for someone who's very like to-do list oriented, like I am, I was like, I am that. <laughs> like I had like no, no answer other than that, you know? So, and that's a challenging thing because we live in a culture that's very much oriented toward like do, 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 work, 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 um, earthly treasures, you could put them, you know, in the contents of this passage. So it's, it's good to have that perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Questions, reflections here, yes. I have the Sunday missiles, so I don't yes. know if the verses listed down by number. Sure. But I'm, are, are, are we getting foreshadowed for degrees of punishment for unfaithfulness here? So degrees of punishment, that's interesting that you would say that. So, uh, or have, like, that's an interesting thing to point out because um, you, if you've read uh, Dante's Inferno, in Dante's Inferno, there's these like nine levels of hell. That's not church doctrine. That became kind of adapted. You know, people kind of believe that, but it's not anything that the church teaches. However, there is a degree here, especially toward the end here in verse um, 47. Um, well, for 46 and 47, that a servant who knew what the master expected and didn't do it is going to be beaten severely, punished severely. In fact, the original Greek says that he will be cut into pieces. Yeah, so it's more visceral Greek for you. But um, And then the servant who didn't know, who was ignorant, didn't know what the master wanted, but still behaved in a way that was inappropriate, will be beaten, but not as severely. So there's this kind of degree of culpability. And in the church, the Catholic church, we understand there's two different categories of sin. Okay, you've probably heard this before. Mortal sin and venial sin. Okay, we get this from 1 John 5, verses 16 to 17, where it says there's some sin that kills the soul and some sin that does not. And so the smaller sins that we commit, the sins that we commit all the time, probably every day, are venial sins. Those are the little ones. You know, uh, we told this like this white lie, or you know, I had this little outburst, or whatever that was. I wasn't acting in accordance to uh, what the church, uh, what God wants of me. And the church teaches that those sins, venial sins, the small ones. They wound charity within us. That's what they do. They wound charity within us. But they do not completely disconnect us from God. Okay? They just inhibit our ability to act with charity, with love. The serious sins are called mortal sins. Those sins, the church teaches, sever our relationship with God. They separate us from God to where we are now, we're no, no longer in relationship with him. That sin is so serious. And that's why we need confession. We need to be able to come back and reconcile, come back together. And because sin doesn't just affect our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with the community. Remember, we are all parts of one body, the body of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians. 
We need to go to a representative of both God and the community, and that's why we go to the priest. But we only go to the priest for those mortal sins. Okay, so you can say venial sins when you go to confession. You can say as many venial sins as you want. I stole a paperclip. I stole two paperclips. You know, whatever. You know, small sins. You can say as many of them as you want to, but you don't have to. The ones that you have to say in confession are those serious sins because you are separated from God because that sin was so serious. So there is a degree of culpability. And in the church teaching about what constitutes a mortal sin, um, there's these three elements. That if these three elements are present, then it makes a mortal sin. The first one is that you have to be aware. You have to be aware that this is a sin. And so this is where this ignorance comes in in this passage. Someone is not, if they don't have the capacity of awareness, or if they just did not know, like I genuinely didn't know that I couldn't do, like there's certain things we know. I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't know I couldn't murder somebody. No one ever taught me that. Like, no, you know you're not supposed to kill somebody. Like that's kind of in us, all right? But if there's certain elements of church teaching, like, oh, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to consult horoscopes. Like, no one ever told me that. Like, we just, it's just in the newspaper. It seems harmless, you know. And, but I was kind of putting a lot of, you know, emphasis and effort into that. Actually, that's a church teaching. You're not supposed, so if you weren't aware of that, then that could constitute that first, um, and not being a mortal sin because you weren't aware. Okay, but if you are aware, uh, that's A, is aware, it's ABC. If you go to B, B is that it is bad. Meaning very bad. It is what the church calls a grave matter. Okay? A very grave matter. Okay? And that means it's a very serious sin. I'll talk about in a second what that is. And the C is that you consent. You fully consented to do this. No one forced you. Um, you know, you weren't under duress. Like, this isn't something you had to do in a survival situation or you weren't mentally impaired in some way. You know, those things. If those three conditions are met, you were fully aware it was a grave matter and you fully consented. Aware, bad, consent, ABC. If those three things happen, then it is likely a mortal sin. Okay? So what constitutes a bad sin, a very grave matter for mortal sin? Uh, the church has three categories generally for that. Adultery, idolatry, and murder. Okay, adultery, anything outside of the order in which we were created to express our sexual identity and sex in the context of relationships and marriage, anything outside of God's plan for that could be fall in that category of adultery. Idolatry, when we seriously place anything in front of our relationship with God or him being the first and foremost priority in our life. So the main way we break this is when we intentionally miss mass on Sunday. That is actually considered a mortal sin. We intentionally. If you can't make it because your, your car broke down, you're sick, you're ill, that, that is not a mortal sin. Um, but if we intentionally know we're supposed to go to mass, we blow it off on purpose. That is considered uh, a serious grave sin under that category. And then murder. Actively, you know, murdering someone, obviously, but also severe violence, anger, severe gossip, something that can actually wound the soul of another person uh, in a spiritually murderous way. All of those things fall in that category. So there are some other things that kind of loosely might fit in those categories, but that generally constitutes what most of the mortal sins are. So here we have an example of that. And it's good that you pointed that out because it's, it's important to know that there are degrees you know, there's, there are levels of kind of, I think sometimes we get maybe in like a very puritanical attitude towards sin. It's either good or it's bad, right? It's, it's either of the world or it's of heaven. You either don't do this or you do it. Like, you know, and, and there's a, that's very, pur, that's puritanism. That's a very like Protestant kind of mentality that this country was founded on and some of its religious principles. But in Catholicism, there is a lot of more like gray area. There's a lot more like, well, you know, what were the conditions? What were the consequences? Like what... what what were your intentions? What was your awareness? You know, it's not always 
cut and dry of black and white. Like Catholicism lives in the gray area, which I, which I love. There are doctrines that say, don't do this or don't do that. But I, there are probably, I mean, I can think of very few doctrines that there's not some kind of, unless this is the situation, you know, there's not some kind of gray area uh, also at the same time. So that was a very long answer to your question. But yeah, it's important thing to, important kind of teaching uh, moment because sometimes we don't hear that. You know, we don't know why do I have to go to confession? What am I supposed to say? You know, why is this important? Why can't I just confess my sins in prayer? You can. You can confess your small venial sins in prayer. But if you try and pray about a mortal sin, that really, that sin is so serious, it severed that relationship with God. You need to reconcile in the way that Jesus instituted. And he gave that specific authority to the apostles, and those apostles gave it to other people who have been ordained all throughout history, which is why we still have this valid priesthood and these sacraments, so that we can be healed and be restored, be brought back into right relationship with God. So that's why confession is so important, uh, because it brings us back into relationship. Yeah, Katie. Um, is this reading supposed to instill fear? That's a great question. Is this reading supposed to instill fear? So, in a lot of the parables, I'm thinking also of the parable of the um, like the unjust judge, you know, where the widow, the persistent widow goes to the judge, and she's just like nagging him, but he's a corrupt judge. And Jesus is using him almost as this example of God the Father. And you're like, are you saying that God is a corrupt judge? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. When he uses these parables, he's giving examples and he's saying, like, okay, look how these sinful people behave as, like, your base level example. And then how much more so with a good, perfect, and loving God will this be amplified, both in the good direction and in the bad? Because God is averse to evil, right? So he's saying if these things are kind of expected in normal life, you can't be surprised by them when God does these things or when these things happen in your relationship with God. So it's not that God is going to beat his servants. But he's saying, like, look, if even a wicked master or someone who would beat his servants knows the difference between someone who is doing their responsibility and someone who is not, God even more so knows the difference between someone who is living up to the virtue that they've been created to live by or those who are turning away from that and sinning. So this is serving as, like, okay, let me give you the base, like, most, most uh, relatable example with the worst possible like candidates in it, so you can know like anything above that is going to be even more so. Does that make sense? You know, we're, it's not meant to bring God down to our level. It's meant to kind of establish a baseline. Like, okay, if this is the reality, how much more so can we expect from God? How much more can we expect this from God, or, or, you know, what have you? So, if one of the previous week's passages where it says, um, "Who among you would give their son?" Uh, a stone if they ask for bread, or a scorpion if they ask for an egg. Remember that? So it's not saying that God is just going to give you bread whenever you ask for it. It's just saying, like, God is a good father. If you know that good fathers on earth don't do this, even more so, God as the best father is not going to do something like that. So it establishes a, a baseline, but it's not meant to inform us about characteristics of God. It's more about to serve as a comparison. Like, here's the baseline. God is even greater than that. I hope that makes sense. Does that answer your question, Katie? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Yes? Um, I uh, picked up on the 39 forward. It might be, um, I might have been, my mind been tinted because I had this 
intention of praying for peace this month, mm -hmm. but I read it as that, as like when the Peter asks if it is about us or everybody, and the Lord um, answers that it's um, who that is the faithful, uh, who that is toward, who master puts in charge of his servants to give them their allowance of food. And he says that, oh, but that's Eucharist, mm -hmm. that's priests in charge of the faithful, giving them the the Eucharist at the proper time. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of like interpret that as like this is about priests or ministers or mm. I don't know if that's right, but that's yeah, this is one of those verses you can kind of interpret in two different ways. You know, because in one sense, Peter is like, is this for us or everyone? And Jesus gives him basically a description of his future job as the first pope. It's like, who do you think this is going to be for? You know, um, but at the same time, Jesus is asking this kind of tongue-in-cheek. He's like, okay, who is supposed to be this faithful steward who does this? Everybody. Everyone is supposed to be a faithful servant of what they've been given. And if they see a need... They are called to fill it. If they see someone in need who needs food, they're called to give them food. So it's kind of like, and the Bible always has these different layers of interpretation. So you can interpret it literally, you can interpret it figuratively, all these different things. And so I would say both of those interpretations would be valid. Um, I would say based on how the early church took this kind of a teaching and put it into action, it would be clear that their understanding was we all have a responsibility to this. But Peter's responsibility was even then some. Like, even more so, he's the steward of the stewards, right? He's the one who provides for all of us, and we go provide for others. You know, that's the whole reason we come to Mass. Every time we come to Mass, we come to be fed and nourished by the Word and by the sacrament of the Eucharist. Not so we can just go to a coffee shop and be like, oh, how was that homily? The music was all right, you know. No, so we can go out into the world and go spiritually feed other people and physically feed other people. So we come and get fed so that we can go feed others. So it's the same kind of dynamic here, that yes, everyone is a steward, but there's also this kind of irony in this verse that Peter's job description is kind of put plainly out there, that you are going to be the one who's entrusted with doing this. Yeah? Matt, did this kind of title last uh, Sunday's Gospel mm -hmm. about not knowing the, you know, the, the time as far as the, the, you know, the, burn, the, the barn burned down? Yes, yeah. You, you fool, you this night your life will be taken from you, yeah. This night your night. Because it's not an unexpected day that the master returns. Yeah. In here. So that's kind of like similar. Yes, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So you don't know the day or hour that the master's going to come calling. Yeah. Yeah, we see that all over scripture, the unknown day or hour, right? And often Jesus, when he's talking about that, he's talking about the end of time, right? You don't know when time is going to end. You don't know when Jesus is going to return. Um, but the question is, is that going to happen in our lifetime? And the answer is yes. Because it's going to happen when you die. When you die, that's your end. So it doesn't matter when the end happens for all of us. When you die, that's the end. And the same situation is going to happen. You're going to have to, you know, basically justify the state of your soul, how you lived, whether or not you wanted to be in relationship with God. And we don't know the day or the hour of our death either. You know, so it's the same kind of, it's, it's, again, you can interpret this multiple ways. So even though the church does interpret a lot of these passages about, like, we don't know when the end is, but we also need to take it personally and say, well, I don't know when I'm going to be called from this earth. I don't know when the Lord's going to take me away. So I need to be ready. I need to be making sure 
that I am being a faithful steward, a faithful servant of everything that God has given me. Okay, because if I hoard it, and if I hold on to it, I can't do anything with it. And it relates to this um, passage earlier in verse 33. Sell your belongings and give alms. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not wear out. A really good way to wear out a money bag is to keep all your money stuffed in it and never use it. And it just gets strained and strained, and you're carrying it around, and all the coins or whatever are jingling around, and it's getting worn out and worn out and worn out. But if we give, if we're unattached to those things, if we don't look to those things for our happiness, for our fulfillment or satisfaction, then we have the type of money bags that have inexhaustible treasures in them because that treasure is in heaven. We recognize we can't take any of that with us. So we have to balance this. We do have a responsibility to like ensure that our temporal goods, our money, like our affairs are in order so we don't become an undue stress or burden to our family, to our children. But we also have to operate in such a way that, like, I'm only doing that so that, you know, this doesn't create a problem for them. So it creates more opportunity for peace when I go. But I have to recognize I can't take any of that with me. It's kind of that, that exercise I talked about last week. When we, when we think about our future in our life, we just ask the question, and then, you know, what's next? Well, I want to do this. Well, and then what? Oh, I want to do this. I want to start a family and have kids. Oh, and then what? And then what? And eventually... You can't go on forever. You reach that ultimatum point where it's like, well, then you die. And you look back at all those and thens and ask, like, is that really what I should have been, been prioritizing? Is that really what I should have been seeking? And so all of this stuff about the faithful steward and the unfaithful steward, it's all about being ready. Being ready. And this verse here um, where it says, oh, hello, bug. Just crawled out of nowhere in my Bible. That was interesting. Um, find vigilant on his arrival. Oh, on verse 36. Return from a wedding ready to open immediately. I underline that as we were reading it tonight. Is that Does that describe our hearts? Does that describe our relationship with God? When God knocks, when God needs something, when God is calling us, are we ready to answer immediately? If God calls us home tonight, if this is the last day of your life, are you ready for that encounter? Or does hearing that give you this kind of anxiety, like, oh man, when's this confession? When's the next confession? You know, it's tomorrow at five o'clock, by the way. But, you know, but like if that, everybody's welcome. Uh, but if that like gives you pause, it's like, oh man, I'm not ready. Like I've been, I'm still struggling with this or I still wish I could figure that out. Or, you know, I, I wish I hadn't left that last conversation with that friend or family member that way. Or I wish there wasn't unforgiveness or tension between me and this person. Now, eventually we're not going to have time to continue just wishing it was different. We either need to act on it or we're just going to die and that's going to be left. Are we ready to open immediately when he comes and knocks? And part of that is being prepared. Just like these servants, they have to be ready for the master to return. They don't know when he's coming back. And this servant here, he's, it doesn't seem that this servant is anyone particularly in charge. He just sees that certain things need to be put in order, and he's vigilant. He saw a need, and he filled it. And too much, I think, of life is us waiting around for other people to do something about whatever the problem is. Or if we have a problem in our life, we spend so much time waiting for it to just resolve itself or a solution to fall in our lap instead of actively trying to do something about it. 
You know, you may have someone in your family who you've been feuding with, or maybe two people in your family who've been feuding for decades, and they probably don't even remember why. No clue as to why. Or someone from your childhood or from your past says, oh, I hate that person. It's like, well, why? I don't remember. But they're just the worst, you know? That can, that can fester and that can stew. But if we see a need, if we see, we're waiting for them to make the first move. No. Why can't it be us? Even if we feel like someone has wronged us in our family or among our friends, we're waiting for that reconciliation, waiting for them to say sorry. What if we were the ones to initiate? We were the ones to make that happen, to reach out and just see. And maybe they won't. But if we spend so much of life just standing back and waiting for life to happen, for forgiveness to happen, for grace to just fall in our lap, we're forgetting that God wants to cooperate with us, that he's waiting for us to respond, to receive it. And response is never done just sitting idly by, paralyzed, doing nothing. We have to act, do something. That's what this gospel is all about. So these first verses inform all of the rest. Do not be afraid any longer, little flock. Do not be afraid. Did that stand out to anyone, that phrase, do not be afraid? I've said this probably before. It's the most repeated phrase in all the whole Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Fear not. Be not afraid. That's the message of Scripture, most repeated. Do not be afraid. But what's interesting is what he says after. Do not be afraid any longer, little flock. And yet, how many times we respond in fear when we feel small? It seems counterintuitive. Like if we felt small, if we felt weak or vulnerable, that would be the natural human response, to be afraid. But when we recognize that we are little, but God is big, and that we are his flock, that he has chosen us, that he is the good shepherd, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, who knows his sheep, that we hear his voice, that I know them and they know me, when we recognize our relationship with God, our role in that relationship, then we do not need to have fear. Because then it says your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. God's pleased to give us the kingdom, the, the kingdom, the kingdom when we realize that we are a little flock. Recognize the steward who thought he was big and mighty, didn't think he was little, thought he was really great. What did he do when the master was away? He partied it up. He beat the other servants. He exhausted all of that. He ate and drank and got drunk. That's not the type of person God would entrust the kingdom to. No, only when we recognize in humility who we are before God, that we are not our own Savior, that we can't do this on our own. But when we respond to God and all he's given us, we become unattached to everything else. Then, verse 33, we can sell our belongings. We can give alms. And that will provide money bags for ourselves that don't wear out. They're not strained. They're not full. They're not seeking to get the next coin in there. They're constantly emptying, constantly allowing that fabric to breathe and stretch and forming an inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach or no, no moth can destroy. There are so many people in this world who have absolutely nothing and are so much happier than those of us in this room or those of the people who have the most amount of wealth in this world. I encountered so many times doing ministry among homeless people. Like they just have this, you know, you, you go often wanting to give them something. You have conversations and they just bless you. They just teach you. You see this total reliance on God and detachment. 
You know, all that they've been through, you hear their story, and then you just hear phrases like, but God is good, but God is with me. But I'm good, I'm happy with where I am. God's providing. It's utter, complete, total trust and reliance on him. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be. If our treasure's in money and wealth and earthly things, that's what we'll be chasing our whole life. And when the clock chimes and our time is up, do we want to be caught realizing we were chasing the wrong thing? We wasted so much time looking for something that we couldn't even take with us. That informs all of the rest of that parable. Anyway, other questions? Matt? Just a comment on that, um, that line for where your treasure is there. Part told me also. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was um, out of town, but I went to church on Saturday, and the priest just talking about like the um, Old Testament divinity and vanities. And like you kind of mentioned it last week how we spend so much time like you know focusing on you know wealth. But not I'm not saying that that wealth can't be used for you know good. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. It's something that should be ordered properly. But um, what the priest said which I really resonated with is like like the one thing that you can bring to heaven is love. Like that's what we should be investing in all the relationships. So like you're saying, you know, that's where your heart will be. It's not like we can't take anything on this earth, you know, to heaven. Yeah. You know, our relationships. And that's like what God wants us to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, just properly being ordered. Yes, you can, you know, make a ton of money, but just make sure that, you know, it's for the will of God. Yeah. I'm sure it's you know for the purpose of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And it's not disordering your desires to something else. Absolutely. You know, sin and and like charity, sin and grace, they're like magnets that are oppositely charged. You know, they repel one another. You know, sin can be the negative charge magnet and, and grace or charity can be the positive one. And you try and put them together and you can't. But when you put sin next to all the other sin magnets, it just clings on like that. That's the same true in our nature. Like sin and grace repel one another. So the more we sin, the more we'll be attracted to more sin and the harder it will be for charity to take root, for grace to take root. But the opposite is also true. The more that we allow charity to take root, we detach from things, we serve more, we love God, we love others. The more we allow the grace of God to take root by going to him in the sacraments, the less inclined we will be to turn toward those lesser sources of satisfaction. Be more, we'll be far less inclined to turn to instant gratification or these ideas of achievement making us happy. We'll be more turning toward transcendental happiness, contributory happiness, where we serve other people. But they cannot exist in the same space. One will repel or overtake the other, always. So that's exactly right. Yeah? Well, however magnets work. I'm not, I'm not a physicist. You get the idea. Fine, they're the same. Same charge. Anyways, yes, Katie. Um, Jillian was wondering, verse 35, yes. gird your loins and light your lamps. Yes. In the verse that, or in the version that they have, it said, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Yeah. She was wondering what that looks like in today's world. Yeah. Well, in the Old Testament, you all know how to gird your loins? Yes. You're going to learn something, all right? So in a, 
If you're ever wearing a bathrobe, you can practice this. Go home tonight, put on a bathrobe, you can practice this, okay? So everyone wore long tunics, okay? Um, you know, at this, at, especially at times at nighttime, helped keep, keep you warm. And if you were told to gird your loins, what you were, what you were being asked to do was like take the bottom of your tunic, roll it up, like above your knees, and you bring it before you, and then you kind of wrap it under your legs like a diaper, and then you separate it, you tie it in a knot. You basically make yourself, your tunic, into like a sumo wrestler diaper. So that you can run, you can fight, you can do battle, you're ready. You know, you're not like kind of lazily lounging around, okay? So you can imagine how, how much easier it would be to run in something that was like, you know, tighter, more conforming to your body than if you're trying to like run away in a bathroom, you know? So um, this is why I don't believe in high heels. I don't think high heels should exist because you can't run away in them. Like it's so impractical. I think they were invented by men to make sure women can't run away. That's just my theory. It should, you shouldn't wear them, you know? Um, or at least bring flats, you know? Just bring flats to change into immediately. But, you, you know, so that's the equivalent here. So the modern translation, Jillian, don't wear high heels. No, it's, it's be ready. Be ready. So don't be so caught up in comfort and luxury or so unexpected when the time comes. They're like, oh my gosh, like, I have a health scare now. Like, I didn't know this was going to happen. Like, no, we all know that we're going to die. We all know that this is part of the human experience. Last time I checked, human beings have a 100% mortality rate, okay? Except for Jesus, but like, statistically speaking, it's basically 100%, okay? So, that, that will not change with you or with me. Like, we're part of that same species, so that's going to come for us too. So, part of girding your loins and lighting your lamps is being ready, especially in the unexpected moments, okay? You're never going to be like totally comfortable, all your affairs in order, you're laying in a hospital bed, and you're presented a menu of all these options, like, okay, well, when about would you like to die naturally, you know, and you just get to pick and choose, and it's like, oh, I'd like to do these few things, oh, yes, I'd like to see this person. No, that's not how it's going to happen. That would be great, but it's not how it's going to happen. And so it's not going to be comfortable, it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be expected. So part of that phrase is just being ready in the unexpected times. So you would have a longer tunic on at night, the light would be off. So this is basically saying, like, tie up that tunic, turn the light on, like, be ready at any moment, any moment. That phrase, though, also has to do with the instructions for the Passover in the Old Testament. If you remember in Exodus chapter 12, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. But that night, the angel of death was going to pass over Egypt, and they had to sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts. And they had to eat it with their loins gird, ready to leave. Okay, that's part of the instructions of the Passover, is that they have to be ready to escape, ready to leave Egypt. And so part of that image of the Lamb dying, the Lamb of God, Jesus, whose blood we claim on the cross for our salvation, we have to be ready still to claim that, to go into this new existence, this new life, this new promised land of heaven. And we don't know when that's going to be. We have to be ready at any moment. So, I mean, it can be if you're very scrupulous about it, I think, you know, but I, so if, if, if you're very much like, okay, I can't, I can't do anything wrong, you know, like I have to tiptoe around my life, then that would be the wrong way to do it, you know, but if it's like, all right, I'm going to avoid serious sin, but I'm also going to make sure I'm present to my family, my loved ones. I'm going to make sure I never leave any conversation with unresolved anger or unforgiveness. I'm going to make sure I reconcile with those people who I haven't yet. I'm going to make sure each and every day I'm prioritizing my relationship with God. Those things can more generally be, be done by anyone, regardless of your life situation. 
know, we can make time for those things if we choose, but they can very easily be run over by the busyness of life, right? You know, like, oh yeah, I could call my mom, but I've got all these meetings today, or I've got all these things to do on my to-do list. Oh yeah, I could, you know, kind of reconcile with my sister, but, um, you know, I just, that's going to be a long conversation, and I'm just, you know, I just want to watch Netflix, I just want to chill, you know, I'm just I'm comfy, I'm in my bathrobe, I don't want to grip the loins just yet, you know, um, you know but we, we can make time for those things if we choose to. Um, but when we get very scrupulous about, okay, I can't make a mistake, I have to do all the holy things, I have to pray all the dev devotions, do all the novenas and the rosaries, go to Mass every day, and that will get me where I need to go. No. If we approach heaven as a spiritual to-do list, uh, we're going to miss the whole point. We're going to miss the whole point. Greg? Two points. Yeah. Not quite, I'm not quite getting the whole period of the loins thing. Yeah, I mean, if I had a tunic on, I would show you. Well, I was going to ask if you could bring your bathrobe next week. <laughs> I don't own a bathrobe. Yeah, I don't own a bathrobe. If someone would loan me a bathrobe next week, I, I would gladly demonstrate. The second thing is, yes. along this vein, how it connects to last Sunday's mm -hmm. gospel, I went to the 5 o'clock mass, and Father Craig, you know, he's, he's amazing. He can... He, he can, number one, he gives short homilies. Sometimes I wish they were longer. Yeah, keep in mind you're being recorded, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he comes out with a sense of, how can I say it, thoughtful profoundness mm. that's wrapped in simplicity. Sure. And he was talking about this constant battle. Mm. About what our priorities should be. Yeah. Spiritual versus the temporal and all that. And then, you know, he's very good for giving a deep, he takes a deep breath of silence. Mm -hmm. And he says, I wish I could give you better advice. And he says, I'm sure you all realize, or you appreciate, or hopeful I won't, hopeful, or hopeful that I will not. <laughs> and he yeah. started laughing, it was really cool. He's great, yeah. To say that, you know, you, you have, each one has to fight their own battles, each one has to find out. How they can do things the best for them. You know, yeah. He doesn't have all the answers. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's great. He used to give very short homilies. Or, no, I'm sorry, very long homilies. And then someone challenged him for Lent to give up long homilies. And he did, and he never stopped. Yeah, because he's an English teacher. He's very verbose, and he's very smart. And you can go on, and it's very easy to listen to him. But between the lines of his words. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. He has, he has kept, I call it pearls. He always leaves pearls. They yeah. go home and think about, oh my goodness. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Huh. Other uh, questions, reflections on this? Other things stand out? Even if it's just for no reason that you're aware of, it just resonated? Yeah. Is there any significance to um, I mean, wedding banquet is an image for heaven. You know, it's one of the images for heaven. But him coming back from that wouldn't yeah. really make sense. It does align with, um, where is this? I think it's in Matthew, probably Matthew 25. It's a parable of the ten virgins that only appears in Matthew. This is probably the closest uh, parallel in another gospel to it. Where, you know, if you know that story, there are the five wise virgins and the five unwise virgins, and some bring extra oil for their lamps so that they can be ready to greet the bridegroom when he comes. Uh, and not having enough oil to light that way would have been seen as a huge disgrace and shameful act. And so uh, instead of loaning their oil to the other ones who didn't bring it, 
they keep it because they don't want, you know, this bridegroom to be shamed and this wedding to be seen as like a, a failure. So they send the other ones away, but by the time they come back, the door is locked and the party starts, and it's an analogy for heaven. Um, however, going back to a wedding feast, him coming back from a wedding feast might just be a practical example. Because culturally at that time, wedding feasts lasted for a week. Uh, week-long party for a lot of people. You didn't really know when people were going to be coming in. We didn't have text messaging, Morse code, postal service, anything like that. Not to be like, hey, I'll be back soon. It would be quicker to just walk back and tell them yourself, which is, you know, what he did essentially. So unless you were very, very wealthy and had the luxury of just like paying someone to go run a message uh, if you're like the Roman emperor. But otherwise, uh, yeah, it's just one of the practical things that someone would commonly be away for. It's probably why they use that example. But it is also an analogy for, for heaven. So, yeah. Any other final questions or reflections? Yeah? Like you said before, it's not necessarily meant that to use the term beating someone mm -hmm. within the term of the gospel. It's awfully severe within the term of the gospel. So, like, yeah. admonishing someone, beating them, you know, that's going back to, yeah. Well, yeah, but that's going back to the example I gave to Katie. Like, is this supposed to make us afraid? Like, is this supposed to tell us about what God would condone or do? No, it's giving an example of even the worst type of servant or master who would allow these things to happen or do these things. Use that as your kind of base level example. And then add on top of that all of God's power, his mercy, his love. So it's not meant to inform us about God. But it's meant to say, like, you know this naturally if you look around at your life. So how much more true is it if God really exists and really does love you and really is your father? So, yeah, no, these things wouldn't be. I mean, it was common at the time if the crime or the situation fit the punishment for uh, masters to beat their slaves or their servants. But we often think of when we see slave, slavery in the Bible, we often think of it through the context of American slavery, which was very horrific very awful. It was not the same type of thing in the Bible. Uh, maybe in Egyptian slavery, yes, but when the Hebrew law condones people owning slaves or servants, it's always indentured servitude. So it's always for a span of seven years only, someone owes a debt, they can't pay it. And then after that time, they're allowed to go free. And if they don't want to go free, if they want to commit their life to that person, they can. And they're given an earring or they're pierced in their ear through the, through the doorpost. And it's done through the doorpost of the house. That's part of the, the Torah law about it. But it's not the same. So it would be the same kind of punishments. You know, there are punishments equivalent for people who aren't slaves, who do severe things. And as we've progressed and as we've, you know, grown culturally, those things are less severe because we have prisons and things like that. But, yeah, so it's, it has a cultural context, but it's also not meant to inform us about the things God would do or God would condone or want for us now. It's more of to establish that baseline and say, you know this already, so how much more then would God, you know, expect of you, or how much more, you know, in his loving justice or his mercy would he react to the situation? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Ultra baseline, I think. Yeah. Well, that's our time. Um, so as we uh, reflect on this passage and we hear it proclaimed again this weekend, it's a good, uh, it's a good gut check especially the first few verses of this passage. That would be the section I would really encourage you to kind of meditate and pray over. We can get lost in some of the semantics of the vigilant and faithful servant section, but all of that just serves as a practical example for everything that just came before it. So I would really encourage you, just those, 
those three verses, 32, 33, and 34, to pray through those and really ask God, how are you calling me, challenging me to put these into practice this week, this month? How are you calling me to be more detached from things that don't matter? Have a, a better prioritization of what does matter. And really consider, I often say this to people, have a deathbed mentality. If I die tonight, if I die tomorrow, what is left undone, unsaid, unforgiven, unconfessed to make my relationships, my soul, my life more conformed to God? And if you can do it, do it now. If you can do something about it, do it now. Don't wait. Okay? The Christian disciple, person who follows Jesus, never says tomorrow. They never say tomorrow. They always say today, right now. What can I do? How can I serve the Lord and respond to him now? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this word. Though it's challenging in some parts, Lord, that you have um, you've definitely given us much to think about. You've definitely challenged us to really consider how we are living our lives, the things that maybe are, are left undone, unsaid, and the ways maybe we need to confess, to repent, to turn away from certain things in our life and to seek your mercy and your love because it's always available for us. Always there. Never with judgment, always with forgiveness. Always a desire for us to come home to you, our loving Father. So we pray, Lord, for the ways that maybe we were convicted or maybe this inspired some kind of fear or shame or guilt, that that would compel us to know your love, know your invitation to welcome us back home, welcome us back into following you more faithfully, more of a right-ordered relationship with you. So whatever that looks like this week, Lord, help us to do whatever we need to do to begin to live that life of readiness, that there will be no regrets uh, if today is our last day. So help us do what we can to live that mentality each and every day and to follow you faithfully in all that we do. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it until we gather once again. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. So